Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. It says 2 Corinthians chapter 8, starting to read at verse 1. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So, we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you. But I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And here is my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now, finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Good morning, everyone. It's very good to have you here. Do thank you for reading for us. We are in the middle of a series looking at 2 Corinthians, and uh, to that end, do keep your Bibles open at that reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. It's on page 1162 in the Pew Bibles, if you just closed uh, your Bibles. There's no handout as such this morning, but on the back of the service sheet, there's lots of space. If you're the kind of person who likes to take notes, then you might find that helpful as we go. Let me pray as we begin uh, looking at God's Word together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you very much for your great love to us, shown in the giving of your son to die on the cross. We thank you that though he was rich, he became poor for our sake. And so, Father, we ask for the help of your spirit this morning to so work in our hearts that we respond to your gospel in a way that you would have us to respond. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This week, as I've been grappling with 2 Corinthians chapter 8, one of my colleagues 
helpfully reminded me about the story of Zacchaeus, who was a little man with a, a large bank account who wanted to meet Jesus. And when he did meet Jesus, he got a lot more than he bargained for. Um, Jesus came home to his house. And after that encounter, there was a great transformation in little Zacchaeus. Um, Before his encounter, he exploited people. That's how he became rich, through tax collecting. And then after he met Jesus, he was remarkably generous with his money. He said he'd give away up to half of all his possessions. And if he had wronged anyone, he'd give them three, even four times what he'd taken from them. A remarkable transformation. And we'd love to know what was said between Jesus and um, Zacchaeus when they talked together. We, We don't know the very words, but we do know the headlines. Jesus said to the crowds, Today, salvation has come to this house, to, uh, to Zacchaeus. And the Bible is very clear for each of us that on our own, apart from Christ, uh, we have done wrong. Our, our relationship vertically with the Lord has been broken. But Christ came to die on the cross for our sins to fix that vertical relationship. And whenever salvation comes to a life, into, into a house, it always brings a horizontal transformation as well. That's what happened to Zacchaeus. And this morning, as we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, I want us to see that the big point for us this morning is that grace produces more grace. That, uh, that vertical grace that the Lord shows us in forgiving us, that vertical grace then impacts horizontally our grace for other people. Just like Zacchaeus, and just like what was happening with the Corinthians. Last week we saw that Paul had written a severe letter to the Corinthians. He was putting his finger on various aspects of their lives that weren't right, uh, areas of sin, and they had received the letter well. They had repented uh, with a godly sorrow that, that led to salvation and no regrets. Paul has received news of their repentance, and he's overjoyed that they've responded so well. That was last week. But then straight away, he writes chapter 8. It's clear that there's a link between what's gone in chapter 7 and chapter 8. Look at uh, how he begins the chapter, verse 1. He says, and now, brothers. See, he's still thinking about how they've repented, how they've experienced salvation. And and he he then writes uh, um, to kind of carry on that thought. And I think the big thing for us this morning is that... um, Grace produces grace. He has heard how the Corinthians have experienced God's grace in forgiving their sins. He now wants to show them how that vertical grace should impact horizontally their own grace towards others. Paul is uh, remarkably bold in what he writes. Imagine if you had the joy of sitting with someone who had just become a Christian and you were talking about how sins are forgiven and you're you're just rejoicing with them. Perhaps you give them a hug to celebrate and I wonder what you'd say next. Well, here Paul, if you like, gets the iPhone out and he says, well, let's open the banking app on the phone. Let's just... um, Flick through the current account. Let's see where the money is going. Let's have a think. Is it going in the right place? It's very bold, isn't it? For someone who's just become a Christian or just repented properly to then talk about money so quickly. He's probably more bold than I would be. But you see, Paul understands that, that grace produces more grace. 
And he wants to see if the Corinthians have got grace by looking at their bank accounts. Before we dive into the chapter in detail, just a comment on the context that Paul is writing about. You'll see throughout chapter 8 that Paul talks about a service to the saints or a gift that he's collecting. He means there that um, he's talking about some money he's gathering to send back to the churches in Jerusalem. A terrible famine was taking place. They were hard up against it. And Paul, in his concern for them, was trying to raise money around the Mediterranean to send back to Jerusalem to, to serve the people there. And so he, he writes to the Corinthians to ask them if they would partner with him in this service to the saints. Paul is thrilled that they are with him when it comes to the gospel about forgiveness of sins. He now wants to see if they're with him when it comes to working that out in practice, including our, our wallets, our bank accounts. And as we think about this partnership with Paul and his gospel and with other Christians around the world, the big point I want us to see is grace produces more grace. I've got two points for us. If you're taking notes, the first is this. Paul would say to us, copy the right example. And that's looking at verses one to seven. Copy the right example. And then the second point, cultivate the right motives. Verses eight to 15, cultivate the right motives. So diving into the chapter, first of all, copy the right example. Look at verse one. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. If you find yourself uh, driving down towards Broom Hill and a bus is in front of you, um, at the moment, it seems on the back of the buses, there's quite a few adverts for some dieting plan. And the, the one I saw recently had a, had a bloke on the back of the bus, or a, a picture of him anyway, and um, uh, there was a, a, a before picture and an after picture. I think his name was Derek, I'm not sure, but there was Derek on the bus. And the before picture, well, he, he was obviously carrying a few extra pounds. His, his tummy sort of bulged out over his belt. And you can see Derek did need to lose a few pounds. And then there's the after picture of Derek and his tummy was flat like an ironing board and he lost lots of weight. And of course, the point was, if you, like Derek, use this dieting plan, then you too, like Derek, could lose all this weight. There was the before and after to show us why it was worth being like Derek. And that is something of what Paul does here with the Macedonians. Of course, he's talking about something far more wonderful than a dieting plan. He's talking about the grace of God. Before the Macedonians had discovered grace, I guess they were just pagans living in a pagan world, viewing money in a pagan way. But, but here's the after picture. God's grace has come to them and has transformed them. Look at verse two. Out of the most Severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. What an extraordinary verse. You can read about the kinds of things that would happen to you as a Christian if you lived in Macedonia by looking through the book of Acts. When Paul was in Philippi, in Acts 16, he was put in prison. In Acts 17, when he was in Macedonia, he was driven out of town by an angry mob. That's the kind of atmosphere facing Christians in Macedonia. And so when Paul says severe trials, he means severe trials. And yet, instead of feeling sorry for themselves, instead of thinking, well, there's tough times coming up, I'm going to pool my resources and not give anything away. Instead, verse 3, Paul says, for I testify that they gave as much as they were able, even beyond their ability. And let's be very clear, Paul wasn't 
sending the offering bag around again and again and again until finally enough money was given because, well, he hadn't even asked them for any money. Do you see verse three at the end of verse three? Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. I don't think I've ever spoken to a church treasurer who's told me that they've had to stand up in front of the church family and and ask people to stop giving because, frankly, too much money has come in. Normally, it's the opposite. Paul hasn't done anything to plead for this money. It's almost like they've given too much. Such is their generosity. Why were they so generous? Well, verse 5 And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. They gave themselves first to the Lord. I think Paul is talking about God's grace. First of all, they've realized that they are are sinners who deserve nothing from God, but in his grace, he's sent his son to die for them. He's forgiven them. They're in a right relationship um, with God because of Christ. And out of that wonderful act of grace, they, they give themselves to the Lord. They, they love the Lord. That's the first thought. They're not trying to impress Paul, the apostle. They're not trying to earn brownie points or show how sincere they are before humans. They just love the Lord. And we're seeing here in the example of the Macedonians that, that grace produces more grace. And it really was an act of grace. Grace means a free, generous, unprovoked gift. The Macedonians had almost nothing to gain from giving money to the Jerusalem Jews. If you can think about the geography, there's many hundreds of miles between Macedonia and Jerusalem. The chances are they would never meet each other in uh, this side of glory. And then think about the gap when it comes to to race and um, culture. The the Gentiles of Macedonia giving to the the Jews of Jerusalem, uh, crossing all kinds of cultural and ethnic boundaries. And, and humanly speaking, you think that this shouldn't happen. There's no reason why the Macedonians should want to give that far with their money. Except it's grace. A free, undeserved, unprovoked gift. Treating other people as God has treated us. And it's this example of grace that Paul wants the Corinthians to follow. And so in verse 6, he, he asks them to carry through with the act of grace they had planned. Well, then in verse seven, he writes, but just as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and complete earnestness and in your love for us, see that also you excel in this grace of giving. Now we know that that faith matters a lot in the Christian life. Um, Knowledge matters a lot. Knowing our Bibles well matters a lot. That's why in our small groups we take great care to study the Bible carefully, to have the right kind of knowledge about God. We know that, that love matters a lot. In Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, he talks about love being the most excellent way. So uh, These things are, are mighty important aspects of the Christian life that Paul mentions in verse 7. But alongside he says, See that you also excel in this grace 
of giving. I guess when we think about the kind of things as a church family we care about, well, we do care about faith and speaking well and Bible knowledge. We want to be known as that kind of church, do we not? But Paul says, excel in the grace of giving. And I wonder if we had the same desire to be like that. Grace produces more grace. Look at the example of the Macedonians. Well, just thinking about what this means for us. So we live 2,000 years later. We live in Sheffield, uh, not Corinth. Well, at one level, it means that our giving should be gracious. That seems to be one principle for everyone. That is, not to give to people because we think they deserve it or because we like them or they've earned it but freely, generously, in an unprovoked way. What about then in terms of the amount? How much, Paul, how much should we give to help other Christians? He doesn't say. He doesn't say how much the Macedonians gave. He doesn't say how much the the Corinthians should give. He, He does say that the Macedonians gave beyond their ability Verse 3, which is rather a scary thought, that this was a radical, sacrificial kind of giving. It wasn't an easy giving for them. It went far beyond their reserves and comfortable surpluses. And so I guess as we think about our own bank accounts and giving, we should feel the challenge of the Macedonian example to not just give when it's convenient and easy, when we think, well, I've got some money over there, I don't really need, so maybe I could give it, but actually to think, would I be willing to give in a way that actually is hard and hurts and is sacrificial, that changes the diary and changes the meal plans and changes the clothes we wear? But we must also hold verse three together with what Paul says in verse 13 later on in our reading. So glance across to verse 13, he says, our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. Well, then in verse 14, he explains that at the present time, yes, there is a famine in Jerusalem, but it's very easy to imagine a future where the famine is relieved and the crops grow and, and the church have plenty. And maybe in the future, the Jerusalem church may end up sending money back the other way. It, it can happen that way. And it seems that the, that the goal is equality amongst the Christians. The Lord has given his people sufficient supplies for life. It's just that it's in different places at different times. And he wants it to be spread around equally. He uses that wonderful picture in verse 15. He references back to the Old Testament to the moment when God fed his people in the desert with manna from heaven. And as the manna lay in the ground, there was enough for everyone. And whoever gathered little had enough and whoever gathered too much had enough. And there was a quality. And that's the principle that Paul appeals to. There's enough to go around amongst God's people. He wants equality, but for those who have more, they should share with those who have less. So as we read about the Macedonians giving far beyond their ability, we should be challenged by their joyful, extravagant attitude, but we should also not feel obliged to give in such a way that leaves us destitute or hard-pressed. That's not Paul's purpose. But if the Lord has blessed us with a 
a surplus, a, a healthy bank account, perhaps he's given us that money for a purpose because perhaps over here there's a need. And then who should we give to? And this isn't straightforward because we don't live in exactly the same moment in history as Paul is writing into. Certainly in the context, Paul is not talking about charitable giving in general, although there are lots of good reasons why we might want to give to charity in general. He's not talking about that kind of giving. He's talking about giving to Christians, to help Christians. He's also talking about not giving to our local church as part of our regular giving to local gospel ministry or, or, or staff teams. That, that seems to be not the kind of giving he's talking about. He's talking about the kind of giving that goes to a different country, to Christians you've never met far away because of our partnership in the gospel. That seems to be the kind of basic principle of 2 Corinthians 8. And so how should we apply that principle today? Well, I think it means at the very least that we as Christians should be aware that we're part of a global church, that if we have riches, God might have given us those riches to help other Christians in different countries in their need. And so we should be thinking globally in our partnership, not just locally. But then that's quite scary because we look around the world and there are millions of Christians in poverty facing huge need. And we think, what can we do? I've got, I've got a little bit of money here, but it's not going to go very far. And the needs are huge. And we can leave here this morning just feeling burdened and overwhelmed. I think we can be more specific, therefore. I think what's happening here is Paul happens to know about a particular need. He's the sort of focal point. He knows about the church in Jerusalem. He knows about the Corinthians, the Macedonians. And he's kind of being a link person to facilitate giving because he knows about the issues. And I wonder then if, if we should just work hard to develop and research and find out about maybe one, two, or three particular contexts in which we could support people. Not the whole world, but perhaps people we have contacts with already. It's a great joy to me that here at Forward, we take very seriously our support of mission partners who go from here around the world to, to be Christian workers elsewhere. And it's absolutely right that we support them in prayer and financially. That's absolutely right. May we never begrudge that part of our giving here at Forward. In fact, I wonder if we could do even more to give to support those kinds of mission partners. Perhaps they might know of people in their local context doing good gospel work that need more funds. Perhaps we could support them that way. It, it might be that we have to go from here and spend some hard time doing our own personal research to look around to find one or two contacts who we can really get, get alongside and support. Um, Christians that we know are doing good gospel work. So maybe it means looking around on church websites and uh, overseas websites, maybe um, websites like Tier Fund to see if, if they are supporting particular projects that we think, yes, that is good gospel ministry. There are Christians that work there. I want to support them. I think part of the cost of giving is to spend the time doing the research, to think it through, to be aware of the needs. But if that's the, the kind of primary application being part of a global church family and global partnerships, I do think that we can still apply it to how we view our local church family. The principle is one of grace, isn't it? Grace produces more grace, and where there is a need, we should be moved to step in to help as and when we can, which means, yes, going international with our money, but of course, if there are needs around us, surely we'd also want to meet those as well. And so if there is someone in our small group who's hard up financially, stepping in and helping them, 
thinking about the church here in Sheffield, it's great what the Lord is doing here, but there are 500,000 people in this city who have not yet experienced the salvation through Jesus Christ. And we're passionate about trying to help as many people as possible hear about Jesus. And um, we're doing all we can. Next year, the, the church budget is facing a deficit. We're not quite sure how we're going to fund next year, let alone the year after. And so the scale of the need here in Sheffield is, is huge. Um, giving to the work here is, I think, a valid sort of sub second application to what Paul is saying here as we support gospel ministry in this city. Grace produces more grace. Paul's, Paul's first point for us, copy the right examples. Look at the Macedonians. Our second and final point is this, cultivate the right motives. I must confess, it's not easy speaking about money to a room this size. And part of the problem is that we're all in different places regarding money. And I don't just mean how much money we have. I mean our attitude towards money. Some of us, I know, have a, have a tender conscience towards money. And just even mentioning the M word, and we're already kind of freaking out, worrying about it. Um, others I know are deeply and wonderfully moved by the gospel, and you're giving sacrificially in a really brilliant way. And Part of what I want to say to you this morning is thank you and keep going. It's excellent what you're doing here. It really is. Thank you. But then I'm also aware there'll be others here this morning who know about the salvation that comes through our Lord Jesus Christ and yet somehow we haven't connected the dots between his vertical grace and our horizontal grace. There's something that isn't quite right in our hearts and so we do need to be challenged each of us to check where grace is in our hearts, what kind of fruit it's bearing, to see if we are being motivated as Paul would have us to be motivated. And it's uh, wonderful how Paul comes at this issue of money. He, he doesn't come in giving a, a bottom line total. He doesn't say, this is how much to give. He doesn't um, jump and shout and scream and say, you must give, you must give. No, not at all. He's after our hearts. He's talking about right motives. So look at verse eight. Paul says, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. I guess the legalist amongst us will long for a number, a percentage, a bottom line that we have to give. But Paul won't do that. He just instead gives us the right motives to give. He wants us to love to have a concern for the body of Christ, whether locally or, or, or globally. And so how should we love? Well, look at verse nine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Paul is, of course, not talking about cash He's talking about something far more wonderful. He says, come with me. Come with me and look at what we know to be true about the cross. Let me tell you about the one who was rich from eternity past, the Lord Jesus, rich with power, of course. He reigns over everything. Uh, Rich with status. He is the name honored above every name. Rich relationally, caught up in the Trinity with his Father and the Spirit in perfect eternal relationship. He had everything. And yet he came down, took on flesh, so that he might die 
on a cross? And is there a lower place than the cross? Physically, it's a place of weakness because on the cross, your, your hands are, are nailed in, into place on a piece of wood. Your feet also fixed in place by a nail. You, you can't move, you can't wriggle off the cross. But it's more than that, isn't it? Because the cross is a place of scorn and mockery as the people watch Jesus die. And even more than that, it's a place where he, though sinless, was covered with our sin. He bore our sin on the cross, taking our judgment onto himself. He became poor, that we might become rich. Rich in terms of honor, we are caught up in the family of Christ. Rich relationally, we are now in Christ with perfect access to the Father by the work of the Spirit. We are rich spiritually, blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. The blessings of forgiveness and adoption. Uh, We are rich with an eternal inheritance kept in heaven for us, but one day to be uh, revealed uh, face to face before us. And so I found this chapter a real challenge this week because if I'm honest, often I I don't want to give. I work hard for my money. I like my money because, yeah, my money pays the bills, but, but more than that, my money gives me a chance to go out for a meal or enjoy some luxuries in life, maybe go on holiday to buy things I want to buy. I, I really do like my money. And that's why Paul is so pastorally brilliant here in 2 Corinthians 8. He takes people like me with my heart prone to not want to give, and he, he doesn't shout or jump or scream. He just says, come... Come and look at the cross. And if we feel in our hearts a a reluctance to want to give our money graciously to others, I'm not here to shout and jump and scream or command. All I can say is, come, come and look at the cross. Grace produces more grace. And so in verse 10, Paul passes on the advice he has for the Corinthians. Not a command, but wise advice. And then verse 11, he says, Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. You can see how Paul is putting his finger on the issue. He's talking about motivation, eager willingness. Having looked at the cross the grace of God bearing fruit in our lives with, with eager willingness to, to give grace to other people. I heard an interview with a church leader who is well known to many of us, uh, a well-known preacher and author. I heard a, him talk a couple of years ago about how much money he gives. And um, he described how 30 years ago, when he was just beginning his ministry, he didn't have much money, a very small salary. He just about was able to get enough money together to to buy a small three-bedroom house. He wore cheap clothing and had a cheap watch and then was able to give 10% of his income to the church family. 30 years later, now a leader of a large church, having written a couple of books that have sold in the millions, he's received literally millions of pounds coming in through his his work. And he said, I still live in the same three-bedroom house. I still wear the, the, the same cheap clothes and I can verify he was. Um, and he still has the same watch. And he now gives 
90% of the money coming in to local church work. You see, his means have changed over the years. Verse 11. Early on, it meant 10%. Now, verse 11, it means 90% for this church leader. But let's not miss the point. If It would be possible for him to give 10% and to do it graciously, joyfully, eagerly, and to give 90% in a begrudging or bitter way. And Paul is clear which way is better. Much, much better to give 10% joyfully, eagerly, than to give 90% for a different motive. And so for us here this morning, it may well be that for a number of us, we can only afford literally a couple of pounds this coming year. That's all we have before the Lord. He knows that. That is our means. All he asks of us is to give eagerly as we look at the cross. There'll be others here today who are able to give far more than that. Maybe you already are. I guess for us, the challenge is to check our motives. Why are we giving what we are giving? Have we slipped into unthoughtful giving? Have we stopped planning where we give? Or maybe we've stopped being motivated by eager willingness, but by something else. Pride? I don't know. Much better to give a few pounds eagerly because of grace than to give thousands of pounds for the wrong reason. Whatever our resources, Paul would say to us, cultivate the right motives. And so we've seen this morning that grace produces more grace. I hope we are a church family in the grip of God's grace. I hope it means that we are able, like chapter 7, to talk openly about our sin with one another, knowing that we are not put right before God through our performance, but through his grace. But also I hope this week, chapter 8, that we are known as a church in the grip of God's grace by our bank accounts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for the love you have shown us in the death of the Lord Jesus. Father, how we marvel at what he did for us, the cost he paid for us. Father, thank you that we are rich in Christ forever. And so please, we ask for the help of your spirit to connect what we have in Christ through the gospel with our lives and our relationships and with our money. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.